Well, as Deirdre said, we are concluding our series today on uh, race and reconciliation with with uh, a bit of a vision for the church in moving ahead. And I'd like to pray before we get started. Lord Jesus Christ, we are exceedingly thankful for the trials that you have brought upon us or that the world has brought upon us over the last year and a half. God, I know that it has been a challenging season for a whole lot of significant reasons whether it's COVID or the unrest due to rioting and protests and racism and discrimination, uh, policing, uh, and the economic challenges that have been brought. God, we, there's, there's a whole host of things that have brought trials. And we acknowledge, Lord God, that it is very difficult at times to follow your instruction to consider it pure joy when we face trials of, of many kinds. But God, um, as uh, personally as, as I look back in the last year and a half, I most of the time, I confess, I have not looked upon it in fondness, but God, I am thankful uh, for this season because I can see how you are growing me, uh, my family, and I believe this church So Lord, um, we thank you for the trials, and we do indeed have joy in them because you are conforming us to the image of your Son through them, and in that, bringing joy. So God, we uh, ask that you would uh, bless um, my words today, that you would help us as a church to gain clarity, and us as households and individuals to gain clarity on moving forward on our, on our mission in this world in service to you and in meeting the pressing needs that the world has. In your son's name we pray, amen. So as we think about the word vision, it means to, to look ahead, to look ahead. And usually it, it implies that there's something different, that there's gonna be some change, there's gonna be some improvement, uh, which I think also implies that you need to look back to see what needs to be changed? Um, so what I want to address today is what do we need to change or what do we need to repent from and what do we need to improve on or add in regard to this concern around um, racism and the, the need for rec- racial reconciliation in our world. So the vision, the vision. Here is what I think, all right, here is what we would like to see uh, from a vision standpoint. We would like to see a more diverse expression of the kingdom of God in our own local expression, right? As we looked at in the second sermon, uh, actually the first sermon, um, we, we know that God is bringing the nations together, all peoples and languages and ethnic groups together to reflect his family. And I think that that is something that we should aspire to or, or we should at least um, um, be drawn towards and, and pursue Second thing, um, a greater expression of unity with diverse metro churches and ministries. So that's the second thing. 
So I think when Jesus prayed in John 17 that his people would have unity, uh, I think that that prayer is informed by what we see in the book of Acts and what we know throughout history, that the, that the biggest challenges to unity that the church is going to face is when peoples and cultures collide. And that's what we saw, that's, again, that's what you see in the book of Acts, that's what you see in the Gospels, that's what you see Jesus dealing with. The, the, the conflict between Jews and Gentiles, which were differences of language, which were differences of ethnicity, which were di differences of culture, differences of religious culture. Um, and so when Jesus prays for unity, I think what we really have to think about is, is can the people of God... Um, come together in a way that highlights the unity that is found in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit and minimizes all of the different ways that people find differences among themselves and then use those differences to, to justify conflict or separation or, or division. So that's the second thing. First thing, a more diverse expression of the kingdom in our local expression as a, as a church. Um, second thing, working with more churches here within the metro area, churches and ministries that reflect uh, a greater expression of the diversity within the kingdom of God. And, second, and the last thing, more engagement with pressing needs that reflect the inequities due to systemic, historical systemic racism, present structures. And I, and I want to make a comment here. Um, there is a difference between uh, sy systemic racism um, and, and structural inequities. So if, if something is systemic, it's a part of the rules, the laws, um, and really, as a, as a society and as a culture, it would be very difficult to find actual laws, um, actual rules, whether it's in government or corporations or schools, that promoted discrimination. Now, that's in our history, absolutely. And because it's in our history, we still have structures, okay? We still have ways of life. We still have cultural realities that are present that are still reflecting the systemic racism that, that has occurred. So what we want to do, I mean, there's, there's a role for policy, and, and I can't remember which of the sermons, I think it was number seven or eight, the one where I was quoting Dr. Bradley when he's in his book on, on the uh, overcriminalization and mass incarceration, he said there's a, there's a role for policy. There's a role for government institutions. There's a role for the legal work that needs to take place and the political work. He said, but there's also a great need for what he called the civil society organizations whose purpose is to form human lives. And that's really where we need to see ourselves as a church. We are one of those types of civil society organizations responsible for the formation of human life. And that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to enter into the world and its pressing needs. We want to enter into the world and its disunity and division and conflict. And we want to, we want to, we want to continue the work in the, in the small ways that we can as a small local church here in a metro area of three and a half million people 
to address pressing needs that have been um, created because of the, the systemic racism and the ongoing structural inequities. Now, these are just three things in our vision, and we want to pursue them. These are not things that are going to change overnight. We're making progress on them right now, and I think we'll see these changes emerge over time. I really appreciated what Corey Dean said last week, and again, thank you for the, the great response in, in coming to that event uh, with Corey and Mariah, and I think it feels like there's growing support around helping out the Man Up Club. Um, but he, Corey said, you know, there, there, we do need to recognize that there are differences in culture. And differences in cultures, difference among people groups, differences among races uh, that are reflected in culture are real. They're real. And those are going to cause uh, challenges and divisions and, and all kinds of things. And he, then he said, but those are the things that um, God is going to use to highlight the power of the gospel to bring unity. And so there's, we, we can look in, at the differences between cultures, um, and, and instead of seeing that they are a cause for continued separation, we could see them as, as ways to highlight the gospel. So to accomplish this vision, what are the things that we need to repent from? We, as we talked about this as a, as a ministry team and as elders, um, we want to. We 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 have engaged in the conversation. We had a forum on race a few years ago. Um, it's a it's a topic that we've continued to address throughout our sermon series. Uh, so we haven't completely neglected to engage the conversation, and that's a phrase you hear a lot. And I think some of our guest speakers have said we need to you know, stay in the conversation. That's something that we've done. We've also made some efforts to address problems associated with um, systemic racism and its structural effects. Um, so it's not like we've completely ignored it. And I think that, that because we've made some efforts that actually contributed to, um, I don't, maybe the word blindness is appropriate. Um, I think that as a, as a leadership, and, and, and I'll take the bulk of the responsibility for this, um, I, and, I th and we've said this in the past in this series and in other times, um, I, th we, I think we got comfortable. I think we got comfortable. We've done some things, um, but what if God would have more things for us to do? So we want to continue to engage the conversation. We want to continue to, to work at efforts that we have made, and Twin Cities Ministries being one of them in providing housing for those who are, who are affected by mass incarceration. But there are still needs that are present. There are still needs that are present. When I first came to the Twin Cities, I, I had a meeting with, uh, at that time it was Councilwoman Hodges, and she eventually became mayor. And, and when I when I met with her and talked to her about the problems that face the city, the first thing that came out of her mouth was that, that the biggest problem the Twin Cities faces is its uh, r racial segregation. And that is still a massive problem. And, that, and the problem was significantly revealed uh, last summer 
um, with George Floyd, uh, his murder, and all of the subsequent protests and riots, it's still a massive problem. And um, as is the case with human nature, we oftentimes, if we're not affected by the problems, we tend to uh, ignore them or just not even be aware of them. We were not actively engaged in what is a much bigger problem. And so that's something we need to repent from. And uh, that's part of growing in the conversation. And I think that also um, we need to do some things. We, we have needed to do some things on the preventative side of the problem. You know, providing housing for people affected by mass incarceration, um, a disproportionate amount who are people of color, is on the back end. Let's do some things on the front end. I think that that's where we can repent. And um, I think also we need to repent of not pursuing a greater sense of the kingdom of God within our own cities. Now, we've done this internationally. We've got great partnerships with brothers and sisters in Portugal and in Mozambique and India. And the goal has been to, to have some of our folks participate in some of those trips. We are starting to plan some of those things and have some of those folks come over here so that we... Uh, have a greater sense from a, from a relationship standpoint of of those of, of the kingdom and of our brothers and sisters in other places. Um, and these things, I think, that these relationships have helped to expand our vision. But I think that there is a substantial amount of work that we can do. And again, we've started to do this uh, here in, in our own metro area. So those are the things that I think that we need to repent from. So what do we need to do to improve as an organized church? Okay, so there's the organized church, and we talked about that in our mission series significantly. You know, there are things that we are collectively responsible for that the scriptures give us as a church that we need to, to be faithful to. Um, but it's a very, it's a narrow, it's a narrow range of things. The responsibilities to Christians in churches is massive. The burden of the teachings and responsibilities that we read in the scriptures are to all of God's people. There are only a few books written to leaders. All of the rest of the instructions fall on all of our shoulders. And so I want to talk about what are those things that we need to improve or add on as an organized church? What are the things that we as leaders need to be responsible for and change? And then what are the things that we need to address as individuals and households? So the fir first thing, I we want to pursue existing diverse relationships that, are, that already exist within our, within our networks. We have relationships, and, I, and the reason why I want to focus on existing relationships is, is because we have, I believe that the Holy Spirit guides us in a, in a number of ways, but one of those ways is through the relationships that he brings us. We started Twin Cities Ministries and the effort for housing because God brought the people of 
Seth and Gina Evans into the contact with the people of Twin Cities Church. A relationship was formed, and that relationship led to mission and ministry. And so we, we have relationships with people in the Twin Cities that are, that are already involved and reflect a greater degree of diversity. Um, a couple months ago, uh, Jonathan Kuropati came in, and, and he's the leader of a, of a house church here in the Twin Cities, and he just shared, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Indian citizen, and he's here on a, on a work visa, uh, but he is, a, um, he is an evangelist, an apostolic type leader. He's a, he's a connector, and he's got a house church that we've been working with. Uh, and he started the women's discipleship home that, that we are now really significantly supporting. And he came and spoke to us that morning about the need in India and, and spent, I think, 10 or 15 minutes speaking. He went way over his allotted time. Um, and he and his group came and participated with us uh, in a baptism ceremony the last time at the beginning of the summer. And, and we've invited him and we're still waiting for details for next week's service as well. But he's also connected with a number of, of churches that are um, large, that largely consist of people of color here in the metro area. And he's invited us into that group. And so there's some, there's some existing opportunities that we want to start taking advantage of and have started to take advantage of that I think that over the, the months and years ahead of us, will start to have an effect on our sense of the kingdom of God and the greater diversity that it has. Uh, we want to continue to develop our relationship with the Man Up Club. I got a, again, a, a number of people said that they were going to sign up and volunteer and help out with the God Flow event. And um, the, uh, the, that, those relationships that begin to form uh, will start to produce... Um, opportunities that the Spirit is going to, to use. I'm not saying that we're going to have this massive influx of people into the church that reflect different races and languages and ethnicities. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying, I mean, that may happen. What I am saying is that our participation with other, minist with other diverse ministries and churches is, is starting to grow, and we'll see what the Spirit uh, brings into that. I just want to, uh, you know, the just there was a couple of examples. Um, you know, as the as these relationships grow within these contexts that we as an organized church already have, and I'm not even speaking to all of the various contexts and opportunities and relationships that exist in the church. I mean, there are the 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 social networks within the church. Uh, it would number into the thousands and thousands of people. So I'm just speaking to the ones that, that we know of and that we are already um, fostering and collaborating with as a leadership team. But I wanted to give you a couple examples. Uh, so Selena Dean was, is the daughter of Corey and Mariah, and she was here last week with her, with her brother as, as Corey and Mariah uh, you know, were interviewed and shared. And Selena is also uh, a hip-hop artist like her father. I think, I think maybe all of their family members are. Um, now, as, as AJ knows, and I think AJ is here today, 
you guys would never know this, but AJ loves hip-hop music. Um, but, and I always give him a hard time about it um, because it doesn't seem like it's him, right? And um, I have not been a big fan of hip-hop music, which is probably not, no big surprise to, to any of you. Um, but because we met Selena, and because we're starting to get to know her family, our family has been listening to Selena's hip-hop music this past week. And I've listened to a few songs. And I have grown in my appreciation of it. She's interested in coming and checking out our house church. That would be great for our house church. It'd be great for me. It'd be great for our family. You know, there, have any of you seen the, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, The Courier? Have any of you seen that? Not very many of you. Okay, spoiler alert. Um, you've had plenty of time to watch it. It's a 99-cent riddle right now on iTunes. Um, so the story takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s. And Russia was trying to develop first-strike capabilities with nuclear missiles because we had first-strike capabilities against Russia. In, a, in the case of a nuclear war, because of our allies in Europe, we could launch nuclear missiles against Russia instantly, and it would affect Russia before they were able to affect us. It's first-strike capability. So President Khrushchev of, of Russia tried to build missile silos in Cuba and was building missile silos in Cuba. And... A top government official in Russia was frightened because of Khrushchev and his, uh, just, he's, he, he's, he's kind of a madman is how he described him. And he feared that Khrushchev would lead the world to nuclear war. This is a top government official. He was a top military official. He was greatly honored. He was in the top circles. But because of his fear of nuclear war, he reached out to the American and British um, governments and said, I will get information to you on what we're doing because if I don't, I think we're going to have a nuclear war. So he formed a relationship. So the CIA and MI6 got an American businessman, and he's got a strange name. I can't remember it, but it's Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Just a businessman. No training at all. And they got him to form a relationship with this, this Soviet official. And Cumberbatch's character, they, they, he had invited the Soviet official into his home. And they had a kid, maybe 10 or 12 years old, and they're sitting around the dinner table. So it's this top government official from the Soviet Union and Benedict Cumberbatch's family. And the 10-year-old says, why do your people hate us so much? So the Soviet official said, well, it's not the people. Your government officials hate our government officials, and our government officials hate your government officials. But the people, we love you, and I think as people, you love us. But he said, listen, there are many changes that need to be made. 
It's a really remarkable scene. But then he says, and the kinds of changes that need to be made begin with just us two people having dinner together. And, and I say that because we are bombarded by calls for change in our society, calls for quick responses. What we want to do is we want to build relationships. If you, know, if you remember what Corey said at the end, I, I did not expect this. He said, we have to be careful who we let in. He has to form relationships with people that are, that are striving for the kingdom of God. And by God's grace, he detected that in us. We have to form relationships. And as the, we form these relationships, just as it occurred between these, these two Soviet people and Americans, um, it's going to start with relationships and people. And so we, we seek to love and we seek to grow with the people that God puts around us. And I'm really seeing that that is going to lead to change, to change within us and with others that we also enter into relationship with. The problem of the segregation of churches that exists, you know, there's that saying that I'm sure you've all read over sometime in the last couple of years, the most segregated time in America is on Sunday mornings. It's not just a quote, white people problem. It is a, and, and N.T. Wright's got a great article on this uh, that I've posted sometime throughout the last year and a half. Um, there have been structures throughout Christendom, throughout the world really now, uh, religious structures that go all the way back to the Reformation that have contributed to the segregation of churches. I mean, you have, you have churches that, of people that have been here for generations. Here in the metro area, there are Korean churches, there are Chinese churches, there are Russian churches, there are Southern Baptists. You all know, it's not just a white person problem or white Christian problem. It's a problem that exists throughout all of the people of God. Why are these identities formed? Well, it's a significant cultural uh, issues behind that, but I think we as a people of God need to, to strive for a greater degree of unity, all of us. So that's just, that's just a, a little bit <laughs> of what I think we need to improve on as an organized church. We as leaders need to pursue relationships with other churches and ministries. What do we need to improve on or add as individuals? And I think the answer is similar to the answers for the organized church. Where has God brought connections in your life to people that are not like you? You know, the word hospitality means to love strangers. Who are the strangers in your lives? Who are the people that are not like you? And we all need to ask ourselves, are we loving the stranger? Are we loving the stranger? You know, a question has come up um, in several t contexts. Um, and the issue has been brought up. You know, we have, we, have, we have families that are growing significantly in the number of children they have. 
And so the question comes up, where are we going to live because we need a bigger house? Where are we going to send our children to school? Um, We'd like a bigger yard. We'd like a different neighborhood climate. And so um, these are really good questions. These are really good questions. And what we find in these questions is, is an important tension. To what degree do we consider our own interests? The interests, our economic interests, our comfort of life interests, our, our children and their well-being and their schooling interests. So those are all good questions and good tensions. The other, the other side, though, is, and then to what degree do we consider the interests of others? And that brings us really to our passage for the day and the, the gospel application. So I just want to read in your bulletin, it's there, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 24, verses 19 through 21, and Proverbs chapter 19, verse 7. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner or the immigrant, the refugee, migrant, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the, all of the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. It is human nature... It is human nature to pursue our own interests and not consider the interests of others. And what the Proverbs bring out and what God is bringing out in his law to Israel is that if we are not intentional in our efforts to enter into the lives of what the text calls the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or the poor... Okay, and, and you know, we've done the historical work in this series that shows how um, people of color have been affected from an economic standpoint because at some point they were the immigrant, the migrant. They were the sojourner. And we looked at those who migrated from the south and to the north, and they were the sojourners. They were poor. It is, our, it is our tendency to divide ourselves based upon our affluence. It was a problem in ancient... It, well, it, it's, been a, it's been a problem in, in humanity since the beginning. And, and God's will for the people of God in the nation of Israel, they were going to have a different way. They were going to acknowledge that there are, that there are people who are in need that require intentional help. Those that are newly come into the country, the sojourner, the immigrant, the migrant, the refugee, they're not starting from an economic or relational base of strength that households and individuals have that are native. Widows are in need of 
Well, they lost their husband or the husband left. Or, I mean, there's a whole number of reasons why people become widows, but there is an economic effect. There's a protection effect that occurs when a woman loses her husband for whatever way or children are fatherless or motherless, okay? There are economic and social realities present within those contexts, And what the Proverbs show and what the law of God shows and what we also see in the New Testament is that if the people of God do not intentionally make an intentional effort, they're going to be just like the people of the world. We're going to strive to squeeze as much um, profit as we can without concern for the sojourner, the widow, the poor, the orphan, those who are oppressed. Again, we've, we've looked at how this has taken place historically, and a lot of this is behind our racism. The, the economics, are, economics and greed are often behind racism. Many of our social problems that affect people of color are also affecting poor white people. Uh, there's a book that came out a few years ago I can't remember the author. They made a movie out of it. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. Have any of you read the book or seen the movie? A few of you. There's no spoiler alert because there's really not a climax to the movie, but basically it's just a memoir. It's a story of, of, a, of a man who's now running for Congress, but he's a, I think, I mean, he's a, he, you know, he went to Yale. He's a head fund, uh, hedge fund um, uh, he's part of a, the leadership of a head fund, hedge fund. <laughs> makes a lot of makes a lot of money. is very influential. But he grew up in the Appalachian Mountains in the South. And his basic argument is what 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 we see increasingly in our news media about people of color that are poor is also happening to white people that are poor. Uh, Charles Murray in his book, The Coming Apart of White America, makes the same argument. He says, listen, he says, there, there, are, there, are, there are realities present that are affecting all people that, are, that, that, that lead to the social breakdown that we are experiencing in our urban centers and in our poor areas throughout the country. It's not just a problem of racism. It's a part. I'm not saying I'm, it's, a, it's a big part. But there are discriminations also occurring between the affluent and the poor. Again, it is human nature to distance ourselves from these problems. You know, racism is now seen, it's defined as the product of both power and prejudice. It's not just prejudice anymore, it's power and prejudice. I don't completely agree with that. I've been arguing, since I studied these things in school, um, and got more information and understood the stories and historical circumstances, my argument for years has been, it's not just prejudice, it's greed and prejudice. See, power, power is not an evil thing. It can be used for evil. Authority is another word for power. 
We can, use our, we can use power for good or we can use power for evil. Greed is always evil. And greed and prejudice produces the kind of consequences that people of color have experienced in this country and also poor people, regardless of color. I don't think you can really separate um, the... the Re, the, I don't think you can separate racism from greed. It was, it was black people in Africa that were selling black people to the white people that were selling them to white people. And at the same time that there were the hundreds of thousands of black people enslaved in um, America there were hundreds of thousands of white people enslaved in North Africa by black people. Racism is, a, is a, an across-the-board problem of humanity, and often behind it is greed. I mean, Jesus said the root of all evil is the love of money. And that's what Jesus said. And so, again, as we, if we come back to these, these questions... Again, questions about where we live. What schools do we send our kids to? We have to think about what's best for our families. We have to think about what's best for our kids. We have to think about what is long-term helpful for us from an economic and wealth perspective. Those are not things that the scriptures ignore. They are things that the scriptures highlight and say that are good. You know, for us as a family, we chose to be in a diverse neighborhood that would work for us. And I was told by church planning leaders in the metro area, George, do not go to North Minneapolis. You will be completely unsuccessful there. It's not your culture. But we chose to live in a, in a neighborhood that's diverse in a lot of different ways. We can go six blocks and we're at Lake of the Isles with $5 million homes. The other direction, we can go six blocks, and we've got multiple households living in a single place with one, with one family sharing one or two rooms. It is massively diverse. But everybody doesn't have to make those decisions. I know of four families that are heavily engaged in, these, in, in efforts to help people of color, in efforts to help poor, in efforts to help people that have been oppressed, that live nowhere near the urban core. Seth and Gina Evans, you know, last year, Seth and Gina Evans, they bought 20 acres an hour from the cities. And I, I said, Seth, man, that's an hour away up in Zimmerman. He said, George, I need to be at least an hour away from ground zero when it all explodes. But he and his wife drive in every day, every week, well, maybe three or four days a week, because their work is on this. It's an intentional effort. Yes, they see the need for some space and for some, for some land. Paul Staler, he's a surgeon at, in our church at Hennepin County Medical Center. He has in his mind to be on mission in a county hospital that's a trauma center because he wants to serve that population. He could go get a job in a lot of other places as a surgeon. He doesn't live in Minneapolis where he serves, but that's his mission to be engaged in a population that he would otherwise not see. The chances, 
they have a vision to raise horses and to provide uh, that kind of, of entertainment and hospitality to the whole church and to their, to their networks. But they're engaged. Deirdre's work puts her into the context of helping people and those kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, live wherever you want and then get a job to help you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that the tensions, the tensions are always going to be there when we are thinking about where do we live, where do our kids go to school, what colleges are we going to attend, what careers do I pursue? Those are always going to be there in tension with what do I need to do to engage in the interests of others that if I didn't take intentional efforts, I would completely ignore? And I can't answer those questions for you. Those are questions that you pursue the Lord with. Those are questions that you also bring into other things like, you know, to what degree would I be blessed and I am able to bless the church family if I live close to other people in the house church or into the church? You know, so it's a, you know, we've talked, we've gone through the, the book of Philemon. We saw how these kinds of decisions were being wrestled with in a context of, of a house church family and in prayer and in guidance by the Holy Spirit and by our own consciences. And as households coming to unity as a husband and wife and parents and these kinds of things. So that's where the gospel comes in. You know, Philippians chapter 2, do not consider your own interests, but also consider the interests of others. And then it says, this is what Jesus himself did. This is what Jesus himself did. And, and, it's, and it says, being in nature, God. So it's in God's nature to look to the interests of others and not his own interests. But this, this passage in Philippians doesn't even comment on the fact of him like dying on the cross for our sins. It said he, he, he followed in obedience to the Father to lay down his life for the interests of others. And what God did on the other side of it was raise him up and gave him a name that was above every name. And he put all things under his feet. And, and, what, and what, the, what, the, what the gospel presentation there in Philippians is saying is that if we follow Christ in that, just like, you know, I was just reading through the, some Proverbs this morning. It says, the, the, the generous man gives freely and yet piles up more and more. And the stingy man finds himself to be in want. God has built into this world a wisdom that promotes generosity and that he also blesses. And what, what the gospel presentation there in Philippians is saying is, follow Jesus in this pattern and you will experience a power in the gospel that will raise for you glory and joy. If you pursue not only your own interests, but also the interests of others, it will bring glory and joy. That is what he's saying there. That is what he's saying there. 
He had compassion. Jesus had compassion upon us. He saw us and knew us. You know, one of, my, one of the, my favorite passages in Exodus is, you know, it's describing the problems that the Israelites were facing. And the passage said, and God knew. And God knew. And then God unleashed his plan. We do need to stay engaged in the conversation because if we don't, many of us, we would not know what's going on in many parts of our world in places where the pressing needs are. That's where we stay engaged in the conversation. That's where we continue relationships with people that are not like us. Whatever intentional efforts you need to make, whether it's where you live or the job you choose or any other effort, Volunteering for organizations, whatever. Make, we have to make intentional efforts to stay aware of what the needs are in our society. And it's in that moment where we extend compassion and say, I want to enter into your world. I want to have relationship. I want to help you. And in helping you, I'm also being helped. Tim Keller has a statement. Yeah, the cities need us, but we need the cities. We need the cities to continue to press us and push us and test us to keep us out of our own lives and to make us people that are compassionate and devoted to the needs of not only ourselves, but also to the needs of others. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you again for... The trials you have put on our lives, they are making us better. They are making us more righteous. They are pressing us to be just. And so, God, we pray that, that you would help us to have this perspective as we continue to learn and grow. Uh, lead us, Lord God, into the relationships that we need to have as individuals, as households, and as, as a church so that we uh, more fully express your will for the kingdom. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.